This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Jamar Tisby, welcome to Viral Jesus. The book had been out for a year and a half. And then summer 2020, it hits the New York Times bestseller list. Not one week, not two weeks, four weeks straight. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. And then, you know, that was just a whole other lifespan of the book. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I'm going to read you a quote from an NBC News article from July 2020 titled, Racism Among White Christians is Higher Than Among the Non-Religious. Here's a quote. It reads, White Christians, including evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics, are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African Americans. And white Christians are about 30 percentage points more likely to say monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. White Christians are also about 20 percentage points more likely to disagree with this statement. Generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for Blacks to work their way out of the lower class. Our guest today is someone who will help us define what racism is and how we can fight it. Dr. Jamar Tisby is the New York Times bestselling author of The Color of Compromise and president of The Witness, a Black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, politics, and culture. He is also co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. He's also releasing a new book, How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition, which is out right now, which uses history to explore how racism has affected America since before its founding and how it's continued to grow, as well as examines how true social justice is rooted in the Christian faith. So when I have people on, I like to open by reading back to them, kind of putting their feet to the fire and reading something that they've posted (laughs) online. So for you, I've selected this tweet. You say this, much of the discussion about deconstruction is fundamentally white-centered. It presumes a Christianity focused on traditions historically practiced by white people while functionally ignoring the ways Black Christians have steadily and historically challenged those traditions. This tweet has over 1,000 likes. Deconstruction is a big word right now. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? So this is part of the way social media works. There's like this one term that all of a sudden mushrooms into something huge and big and pernicious. Uh, So deconstruction is a term I've heard in theological circles, church circles for years, but never really had a ton of currency uh, in, in, in my circles, but online it's taken on a new life. I think the, uh, the, the most recent 
uh, kind of root of it is tracing back to an article that was lumping me and some other scholars, historians, theologians together because we were critiquing uh, white evangelicalism and the ism of it, right? Like not the individual people per se, but what the sort of cultural and religious practices have become, the way they've been really harmful to um, women, to black people, to other people of color. So I am grouped in with this group of so-called deconstructionists, which is a pejorative term, meaning you're undermining the basic pillars of the faith, the things that we've believed for thousands and thousands of years. Mind you, none of us are doing that. We're coming from our, <laughs> our academic disciplines and we're everything has a footnote. So you don't have to take our word for right. anything. So I'm like, if you don't agree with it, fine. Look at the sources yourself. Anyway, uh, that tweet, though, is because online there are a lot of people talking about deconstruction. But one of the things that I'm big on is questioning the terms of the debate. So mm. deconstruction presumes this sort of existing static Christianity that we're somehow taking apart with our critiques. But what is that existing static Christianity? It's mostly white. Mm. It's historically white. So it's only deconstructing if that's your starting point. What if you started with the black church tradition? What if you started with uh, theologies arising out of Central America? What if you started with uh, different people groups? Then you would see two things. Number one, we're not deconstructing that stuff. I mean, there's definitely, you know, because humans are involved, there's definitely things to critique in every tradition, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um, that's not what we're talking about. The second thing you find is that it's been happening for a long time because uh, in the case of black Christians in the U.S. in particular, we've had to interact with white Christians a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the critiques that I've leveled in, say, The Color of Compromise about the church's complicity in racism, I'm not the first one to do that. As a matter of fact, the entire black church tradition exists in contradistinction to white Christian racism and white supremacy. So I just wanted to say, hey, folks, let's just remember this is a very white-centered conversation. And even in what you're talking about, it kind of is the heartbeat of my work in communication, because a lot of times we argue with each other over words that we don't even understand each other's meanings for, right? And we'll have these massive debates and cancel people over, we never ask them, what is your definition of that word? And one such word, I think, is the word racism. We hear the word racism and everybody creates their own understanding or connotation to that word. I think same with the word privilege, right? We hear these words and, and people just are ready to fight over a term that you've never asked each other. Well, what do you mean when you say that? What is your working definition when you talk about racism in the church, when you talk about white privilege? What does that look like to you? Yeah. Um, so there's lots of ways to define it. I use a shorthand definition because it's short and easy to understand. Uh, prejudice plus power. And mm. I didn't make this up. That's, um, you know, social psychologists have come up with this. And, and, and I'll say as a caveat, because it's such a short definition, it misses a lot, right? There are individual prejudices in terms of racism, right? But I like the, the prejudice plus power shorthand because particularly in Christian circles, what we tend to miss is the systemic and the institutional aspect of racism. Mm. 
It's the idea that my individual prejudice can be enshrined into policy because I have power. Mm. That's the part that Christians need to get. Like, like, like everybody's would agree with um, the idea that that having prejudice against someone based on their skin color, appearance, cu- culture is wrong. But if that's the only issue, then the solution is well, I'm just nice to other people. You know, I'm not going to use the N word at least where people can hear me. Um, some of my best friends are black, right? It's a very individualistic way of approaching the problem of racism. That is necessary, but not sufficient Mm. because our heart to heart talks over cups of coffee and tea aren't going to do anything about the crisis of mass incarceration, aren't going to do anything about the curtailing of voting rights, aren't going to do anything about the fact that black women die in maternity related deaths at three times the rate of white women, not going to do anything about the racial wealth gap. So what I try to convey is that racism isn't just prejudice. It's that added layer of being able to make my prejudice a policy that affects thousands, if not millions of people. And so talk me through, I'm going to ask you a question in a second about what that looks like in like the legal system. But before that, in the terms of church culture and in Christianity, what does that look like? What does prejudice plus power look like in the policies that everyday Christians are are experiencing? Part of it is gatekeeping. So Mm. uh, going back to our conversation on deconstruction, um, Kristen Dumay, who's been in Mm. the crosshairs for these folks for for years because of her book, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, mentioned again on social media, like, like, like part of what is getting these mostly white men so upset is because they've been used to being the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. the gatekeepers theologically. So in seminary, what is approved? What isn't approved? What is considered orthodox and heterodox? Who are the people who decide that? But also even on websites and blogs, what posts get published, even in evangelical publishing, right? What is um, a moneymaker? Not even just what gets a contract, what gets the most resources and support? A lot of people don't realize this if you haven't published a book. It's like once you get in the door, there's very differing levels of the amount of publicity that you Mm -hmm. get, the amount of resources and marketing that goes into it, right? This is all gatekeeping. You can look at fundraising, right? Like who gets the meeting? Who gets the connection to get the tens of thousands of dollars that you need to do a nonprofit well? So um, I think a big part of this is the fact that the traditional gatekeepers are being challenged. And social media is a big part of that because mm. now anybody can raise the raise the objection. Now anybody can bring up the point. Um, we don't have to go through their institutions. So if they there's something that they didn't like in the past, you know, you were in their school, you were in their organization, and they could shut it down or at least curtail it, right? Now there's a lot of freedom on the internet for better and worse, right? But um, I think uh, they're, they're used to, to, to sort of being the guardians of, of what they consider Christianity. And now a whole bunch of people are saying, no, we have a say too. Talk to me about how you feel like social media has played into your journey. This is a conversation, I'm, I'm sure for a lot of content creators, especially with authors, I know people get very upset because they feel like, you know, the industry has become so platform-driven 
driven, which I agree and I understand the critique. I also, as a woman, as a person of color, as somebody who came from a very That's small right. denomination, yeah. I know for a fact I would never have gotten a book deal had I not had social media. I know That's that right. because it removed the gatekeeper. So what are your thoughts on that and how social media has has maybe worked in your favor or how has it hurt you as you have been? I mean, we all, <laughs> anybody who sees you online knows you have been the center of many hit pieces, unfortunately. What, how do you feel about that? What, you're yeah. a real human being. You aren't just a profile <laughs> photo. What does all of this do in your everyday life? Um, so, I mean, social media is actually a very small part of my everyday life. Like when I'm actually operating my, at my highest level, I'm creating, I'm mm. putting out more content. I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm thinking, I'm putting ideas together and then putting them out there. Social media then becomes a way to amplify that content. Now that's an ideal. That's not an everyday thing. Um, I would say in my journey, social media has done a couple of things. One, in 2014, 2015, it really helped me understand the Black Lives Matter moment and movement. Mm. So I would follow activists and people on the ground in, say, Ferguson and hear about what they were thinking, how they were viewing it. And, and to me, who had been embedded in these what reformed and white evangelical spaces, a lot of this was new. A lot of this was bold, but a lot of it resonated as well. So it mm. exposed me to a whole different set of ideas along the justice front. It's also been, as for many people, a connector. So um, a lot of professional connections have come out of social media, connecting with other scholars, connecting with other um, Christians who are who are uh, racial justice advocates. It's been wonderful. And it sort of breaks the ice because one, you know, I love meeting people IRL in real life. Right. Once you've connected with them on social media, it's also thirdly exposed me to the toxicity um, that exists. Now, I had known in my own like real life uh, the pushback that some Christians give when you bring up race. I had seen it firsthand, but online where you have the anonymity of a keyboard and a screen, you get a, a real sense of the... Mm, it's it's an acidic, concentrated kind of hate around this topic of race. Mm. And it's coming from Christians. So you sort of get that kind of um, undiluted in form on social media. How do you think racism plays out in our legal system? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the big one. Um, yeah. So here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's what so many people struggle to understand. You look at something like race-based chattel slavery, where there are literal physical chains, people working in fields, whatnot. You look at something like Jim Crow segregation, where there's like signs over the drinking fountain and, and people say you can't come in the front door, you have to come in the back. Those are very visible, overt forms of racism. And it took a civil war and it took a civil rights movement, but we've largely uh, made those forms of racism either illegal or, or highly, highly unacceptable, right? The problem is most people think that's the only way racism showed up, and therefore racism is a thing of the past. Mm. There are a few problems here and there, but largely the United States, is, everyone's on equal footing, and all it depends on is your hard work. Well, that's not true. Mm. One of the things that I say is racism never goes away. Racism adapts. Mm. And 
This isn't surprising if we think through it theologically, like what other sin has just like died out because we passed a law. <laughs> like, like people aren't stealing anymore. We have a law against that, right? No, that's not how it works. And it's the mm. same with racism. So, um, and, and you can go back and there are actual, you know, political and legal operatives who, who just lay out the, the strategy and say, well, we can't say these overtly racial words, the N-word, or even use racial terms like black and white, but we can arrange things just so that the effect is going to be the same. So one example of the way racism hasn't gone away, but it's adapted is through gerrymandering. So we had the census recently. Mm -hmm. They use those numbers as an opportunity to redraw political district lines. Mm. Now, what the law says in many places is that you can draw district boundaries according to politics, like to favor your political party, but you cannot draw those boundaries along racial lines. The problem is <laughs> the intersection between race and politics is such that if you draw it for one, you are drawing it for the other. And typically, um, what happens is the party that has the least number of voters and is in power is going to draw the district lines to favor their party. Um, what that means practically right now is that it is harder, it is getting harder for many Democratic politicians to win because the borders, the district lines are being drawn differently. Wow. And what activists are saying is this disproportionately affects Black people, poor people, other people of color, and others are mm. coming along and just saying, no, it's just political. But there was a court case just a couple of years ago in North Carolina that said that the uh, political borders had been drawn according to racial lines with, quote, almost surgical precision. Right. Almost surgical precision. That one stood out because it was actually overturned in that case, although they're still fighting the battle now. But things like that are happening all over the place. This is why people are getting so up in arms about voting rights right now, because what some legislatures are saying is, oh, we just want to protect the integrity of the vote. So we're putting in all these measures to make sure there's no fraud. Well, number one, there has been zero evidence of widespread election fraud, certainly none that would rise near to the level of actually overturning an election, which take millions of votes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then two, these new structures in place to supposedly make voting safer disproportionately make it harder for black people, Latinos and Latinas, and uh, poor people, right? So it is closing down polling places. Right. So everybody has to go to the same one. They have to drive further. They have to wait longer. Wow. It's a law that says you can't hand out water to people waiting in line. It is uh, voting ID mm. where um, in Texas, I don't know if they changed it or not, but at one time it was true. A valid ID would be um, a gun license, but not like a college ID. So, you know, it, it's all of these things that never use the term black or white or anything like that, but it just has to affect people in a way that creates inequality. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief. 
an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. about your origin story or how did Jamar Tisby become Jamar Tisby? Even with The Color of Compromise, did you know as you're writing this book that this is going to be a New York Times bestselling book, right? Every author hopes that. But did you know as you were writing it, did the spirit tell you this is going to matter? This is going to make a massive impact? Or have you been shot at the reaction? I, because it was my first book, I had no basis of comparison. Um, I was absolutely shocked. But now uh, that book came out January 19. So Mm -hmm. it's almost three years in. Looking back, I could see the signs. So just the numbers of people interested, right? Like even when I was sending out the advanced reader copy, even when I was sending or gathering together the launch team, there was like so much enthusiasm. I just thought it was, I had a little bit of a platform and this was my first book. So people were excited to see me write a book. I think there was a good deal of that, but I also think um, a lot of it was people really resonating with the book. Then I went to my first book talk. It was at a Barnes and Noble. And I can't remember if the first one was Memphis or Atlanta. They were each of those was number one and number two. I just can't remember which was the first. But I remember walking in and there was this crowd in the store. I'm like, did a new album just come out or what? I don't know what happened. And they were all there waiting to hear me talk about the color of compromise. Wow. And the store workers were like, we've never seen this kind of turnout before a book talk. And I'm like, I was not expecting this. I don't really even know what to say. What does one do at this thing? Um, And then just as soon as the book came out, so before the book came out, you know, you do most of your own publicity as an author. I just want to let people know, like, even when you sign with a, a publishing company, they're relying on you to use your connections to set up the the meetings and all of that stuff. You get some help, but not as much as you would think. So leading up to the book, I didn't have a whole lot in place for the quote unquote book tour. It didn't really feel like a book tour. I had like two or three, <laughs> you know, meetings, right? So, um, but the book comes out and then all of a sudden my inbox gets flooded with speaking requests like never before. I've been speaking publicly for years, but but now it's like every single month, multiple times a month, I had speaking opportunities. And this is 2019 when we could actually travel places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that meant being on the road a lot. And I loved it. I just um, 
I was like, wow, this is really cool. I didn't realize that it was um, due to the book really striking a chord. I didn't realize it was something abnormal or, or, or unusually popular. Then 2020 hit. Like right. the book had come had been out for a year and a half. Wow. And then summer 2020, it hits the New York Times bestseller list. Not one week, not two weeks, four weeks straight. It's mm. on the New York Times bestseller list. And then, you know, that was just a whole other it, 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 lifespan of the book. Um, and even now, I was just um, last week at a couple of different places, Orlando, Waco, where, where Baylor University is, and people walking up to me, you know, eyes watering, almost in tears, just talking about how, um, especially the first book, The Color of Compromise, just really shifted their perspective and started them in a whole new direction in terms of racial justice. So it's not anything I could have anticipated. It's absolutely what I prayed for and more. Um, and I'm just grateful to be part of people's journeys. And I just want to add, Jamar, that you clearly were prepared for the opportunity, mm. right? Like your anointing is very, very clear. And just mm. hearing you speak right now, you know, you've done the work. And so I just want to say this to people who are listening, because a lot of times I think everybody's looking for their breakthrough or looking for their break, but they haven't done the work. And you have to be prepared should that opportunity come that you actually have something of value and substance to say that it just pour it's natural and it pours out of you. And I, I see mm. even when you were talking earlier, I was like, I don't even remember the question I asked you. You're like, well, one, two, three, four, <laughs> right? Like the bullet points, I know them. I live this and I breathe this and it, it just warms my heart. I'm, I'm excited to just watch you shine. Um, in your latest book, How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition, you unpack systemic racism and social justice through a Christian lens for young people. Was that a natural fit for you or was it difficult to adapt the message to meet this next generation? Well, I had help. Um, Josh Mosey is an author and he helped me uh, adapt it because he's written for young readers. But I had a blast writing this book because I got to tell stories of my youth and sort of go back in time to when I was like a middle schooler and whatnot. And so I talk about being on my fifth grade basketball team and how absolutely awful I was. Not all black people can play basketball, y'all. I'm <laughs> evidence of that. Um, but I connected to some of my early experiences around race and inequality. I am so thrilled about this book for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one, I think it's really accessible language. I shouldn't say this as an author, but the young readers edition is probably better or at least more readable than the adult version. Um, we, we really tried to take care to try to break down race and racism in ways that young people can understand. I'm excited because of those personal stories that I think, um, help, uh, form a narrative within the book. That's a little bit easier to follow than just step one, step two, step three, kind of a thing. I'm excited because we did, this book is kind of a blend of color of compromise and how to fight racism. So there's a, good portion of the book dedicated to the history of race in the United States mm. that I think is going to be really eye-opening for folk. Um, and then, of course, the practical aspects. Um, it was really fun, actually, to think about what 8- to 12-year-olds could do right where they are to join in the struggle against racism. Things like running for student council, so you get it an idea that you can change policies, right? Things like examining your school's student handbook 
Is there a wow. policy for um, instances of bullying that are related to race, like going to a school board meeting, like uh, forming your own book club, like um, asking your parents to uh, donate to an organization in your name instead of asking for a Christmas present or a birthday present or whatever it might be? There's actually a lot <laughs> that young people can do. So I think it'll be really practical. And I think one of the other things I'm most excited about, you can go through this as a, a family, as a youth group, as as adults with kids. Um, so, you know, get the yeah. adult version, get the youth version, both get the youth version, whatever it might be. And you can sort of use this as an opportunity to open up what should be, you know, a lifelong conversation and journey. I absolutely am so excited about this book. I'm passionate about always remembering kids are also Christians. Kids are Christians too. Yes, yes. And so I'm just so glad that you took the time to do this. I've been doing this new thing this season where I ask people online, if you got to sit down with Jamar Tisby, what would you <laughs> ask him? And I want to go through some of those questions with you. My, my. At BJ Young. They were good, right? At BJ Young 1990 says, how do you reframe and redeem the time spent as a black minister in a white Christian space when what you have experienced within it exists as the source of so much harm? That's a great question. Um, it's all part of our testimony. Like if you mm. look at Paul in the New Testament, at one time he's holding the cloaks while he looks on and they're stoning Christians to death. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes an apostle, right? Um, it was a horrific time in his life. But it was all part of the journey of him becoming, you know, <laughs> the author of most of the New Testament in his case. I think for us, we can't be ashamed of our journeys. Um, it sort of shapes us and it makes us who we are. So now, because of that, I can speak to white evangelicals in a way that someone who um, was not in those circles can't speak to them. And beyond that, I have a credibility among white evangelicals, because they know I've been there, they know what I've been through. And so it's almost like, you know, uh, the way God shapes and crafts our stories is to be able to speak prophetically into these groups that sometimes have done us so much harm. So um, I'm not ashamed of the journey I've been on, even though my ideas and my associations have dramatically changed since then. So praise the Lord. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. Amen. At Jeff Brady, 1985, asks, in a community in which anti-racist is practically a cuss word, <laughs> what would be the first stepping stone or phrase or scriptural foundation I could use to point to hope and change someone's heart? I mean, think as an ambassador of the gospel. Uh, so you're going to want to stay away from even the terms and the lingo initially that put up walls. Otherwise, you won't be able to. Um, to have that a is a great communication tip, brother. That's right. <laughs> so um, the, the, the other thing I say, I think it's a three-step process when you're dealing with what I call racial justice resistors. Number one, <laughs> tell, your, <laughs> tell your personal racial justice testimony. Yes. And, and by that, I mean there was something along the way in your life that made you care about racial justice. Do your best to pinpoint that. It could be a series of events, relationships, whatever, but do your best to identify that and get really good at telling that story. That's a little bit harder to sort of just shove away and refute on, you know, argumentative or, or logical, supposedly logical lines, right? It opens the door. 
Um, and then you can sort of ask, have you had any experiences like that? Or how does that story resonate with you? Something like that. Um, let's say you can continue the conversation. Uh, if they're a Christian, you can go to the Bible. Even racial justice resistors who are Christians claim that the Bible is their final standard and authority. Well, I am far from convinced that the average Christian really knows what the Bible has to say about yeah. race and ethnicity and how to relate to people. So, you know, get familiar with um, the Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and the image of God. Get familiar with the whole book of Acts, really, and how the gospel is spreading to other people groups. Get familiar with um, all the language uh, to the Gentiles, because unless you're ethnically um, and religiously Jewish, you too are a Gentile. I just want to say, you know, white people aren't the Jews in this story. They're the Gentiles too. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's a lot the Bible has to say about that. Then if you can still continue the conversation, you can start to bring in, I would start with history um, because, you know, the primary sources are there and you don't have to argue over what has happened. You can simply state the facts and say, well, what do we do with how do we wrestle with that and, and move on to, you know, sort of the social sciences. But certainly you can't begin with read white fragility and then come back to me. You know, <laughs> that's not going to get you very far. Brilliant. Brandon J. O'Brien, who's the author of Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, says, I would love to hear how the conversation about racial justice is different for him in evangelical versus non-evangelical spaces. Mm. What are the givens in those outside spaces that are helpful and unhelpful? So in those outside spaces, the given is that racism has been, is a problem. Isn't and that weird? <laughs> it's wild. When wild I read idea. the research that backs up what you just said, <laughs> it blows my mind that it is Christianity that has a problem identifying racism right. and the rest That's of the right. world sees it clearly. It just, I can't wrap my mind around it. Right, right, right. And in particular, white Christians and Christians of color in those spaces mm -hmm. who sort of have the same mindset. So when you take the problem as actually existing, then there's way more talk <laughs> about solutions. Right. So the big difference is within Christian circles, we're still arguing and, and debating whether racism is a problem and to what extent it is. In my other circles, they're talking about, well, what do we do about yeah. mass incarceration? What do we do about climate change disproportionately affecting communities of color and poor communities? What do we do about funding in public education and all of those things? So that's the big difference. Um, what I see as a person of faith in these other, well, in, in, in non-Christian spaces is, you know, wh what is the sort of transcendent basis for your racial justice effort? So they're moving toward racial justice, but why? Like, where is the sort of equivalent of the doctrine of the image of God? Where is the equivalent of, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, as an impetus and a foundation for these efforts? Um, uh, but I will say, just as a quick caveat as well, that, you know, in Black Christian spaces, you find both of those things, not to sort of idealize uh, the black church tradition. But when it comes to fighting racism, yeah. <laughs> we've been doing this a long time. Mm -hmm. Abby A. Krong wants to know, what do you see in young Christians that brings you hope? Mm. One of my favorite things to do is speak at colleges and universities. It gives me so much energy and hope. The level 
of awareness young people have just blows my mind. I'm thinking of myself as a teenager right. around justice issues, and I'm <laughs> like, uh, I wouldn't know a quarter of what uh, young people now know. And honestly, it's a little bit to our shame as older adults because they've been through so much, you know? Uh, they've been through Sandy Hook and, and Parkland. They've been through, uh, for now, a lot of them through a pandemic and are still in it. They've been through uh, the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor uprisings and more. So they've seen a lot of the brokenness of the world, which has um, compelled them to act. They don't have a choice, which is a little bit to our shame because they didn't really get a chance to just be kids or adolescents, right? Mm. But at the same time, they're boldly and courageously and intelligently taking up the charge. Not everyone. Uh, we should disabuse ourselves of this idea that you know racism is a generational thing. Older folks have the worst ideas and younger folks have better ideas. That doesn't happen automatically by any means. It's being perpetuated. If it was a generational thing, then why didn't it die out after the Civil War? It's still with us. That being said, there are, I think, a lot of young people who have a godly impatience about injustice. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, gives me, that gives me energy and motivation as well. One of my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. quotes, and where do we go from here? He says, the difference between good men and evil men is that good men will wait. Mm. He always mm. knows that you can't wait. And good men, he says, will wait to pray, wait to organize, wait for the right time. And if you always wait, you'll never be able to face injustice in the way wow. that God would command you to. And it's just so deep. So good, right? <laughs> Jamar Tisby is the author of How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition. He is also the best-selling author of The Color of Compromise, which you can get either of these books wherever books are sold. Jamar, I want to end this interview by asking you a question. Our show is called Viral Jesus for a Reason. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that there was a man named Jesus that actually lived on this earth and walked and talked 2,000 years ago how can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Such a good question. Maybe the most important question that we've talked about. I think we need to preach and proclaim Jesus as who we are as Christians, rather than what is often lifted up, which is a particular congregation, denomination, tradition. I'm not against institutions. I'm not against tradition. I'm a historian, right? Like I like patterns of history. But what we have as Christians, what we have to give is not just an ideology. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's a person. Mm. There are a lot of objections that people legitimately raised towards Christianity and Christians as they've seen us behave badly in so many ways. But the thing, the it factor, the thing that grabs people is this human being, God come to earth in the form of a brown-skinned Jewish man 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ. If we tell people about Jesus, and not just our church, not just our tradition, not just whatever pattern or 
or culture that we're coming from. If we tell them about this person of Jesus and say, he wants a relationship with you. You don't have to be lonely. You don't have to struggle through this life on your own. You don't have to feel misunderstood. You don't have to feel trapped by your own sort of um, limitations and weaknesses or, or your past or what's been done to you. Jesus is here to shoulder that burden with you and to love you as, as no one else in this life ever has or ever can. Do you want to know more about that person? Let me tell you. Thanks, Jamar, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement in your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector, both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. So I want you to do an experiment. I want you to write down right now your three favorite authors. So think of your three favorite authors, write their names down. Your top three go-to pastors whose sermons most influence you, top three pastors, and your favorite three follows on social media. So pause this recording if you need to. Three favorite authors, three top go-to pastors, and three social media favorite follows. So this is an experiment I do with my students when I teach intercultural communication. Once you have your names, I want you to look at them and ask yourself this question. How many of these people represent a racial category I don't identify with? For most of us, the answer will be zero. Most of us will just consume books and sermons and thought leadership from people who look and talk just like us. Your homework for this week is to expand that list. The gospel is a global kingdom. Look for a global perspective to inform your ideas of faith and politics and theology. Look for black voices to shape your literature. Look for Asian and Latin American and Native American and look for immigrant voices to shape how you see and experience the world around you. Before you come back next week, let's remember to expand our information and take conscious steps toward being part of a global church. Christ died for a global church, and I am just so excited to be a part of that global church witness. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to bestselling author, Caitlin Chess about politics and faith. See you soon on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.